Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Welcome, Henry. Very excited to have you join me today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Sandra. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on this podcast. I've been watching so many of your podcasts, and I've always thought about being on it, but hey, here we are. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, so yeah, to give a quick introduction on Henry Massey, uh, I'm Henry Massey, SVP at Impact Group. I lead the workplace strategy and technology team. Uh, a little history about me. I've been in the industry for 20 plus years now. Informally started my career somewhere around eight years old. I like to give this little story so people kind of get a quick background on, on me. So our family uh, was one of the first pioneers in the Archibus implementation consulting world back in the early 90s, created a company called Asbel Information Systems. Uh, but part of one of the elements of that organization was doing Asbel floor plans, actually physically going out and doing uh, laser to CAD technology or, or doing draft planning and so forth and so on. But at a young age, I always saw plotter paper, pencil, rulers, lines, numbers all over the place. And I thought that was fascinating at my age. It's just like, what is this thing? This is amazing. It looks like a puzzle. How do I solve it? And my father saw that at a very young age. He's like, hey, Henry, how would you like to learn AutoCAD? And that was literally the beginning of my, uh, let's say, my, my, my career plan, if you will, this introduction into this career that I'm in now. Did I ever think I was going to continue it? No, I didn't. Um, I actually thought about going into medicine, but here I am now in, in, in this world in technology. Uh, but fast forward, right? I, I was able to learn how to draw floor plans, but me being who I am, a uh, creative expressive, I wanted to know, okay, what's next with these floor plans? What do you do with this information? That's great. We've created these beautiful floor plans, but what's next? And that's where I started learning Archibus and then obviously how the implementation of Archibus worked and then understanding the business process of organizations, so on and so forth. My maturity in technology naturally uh, evolved through that. And then now here I am, SVP at Impact. Wow, what a story. I had no idea that you your family was entrenched in corporate real estate to that extent. It's actually pretty cool being part of Archibus and sort of the whole, I mean, Archibus has been around for a very, very long time. So just kind of being exposed to that at a, I would assume, at a fairly young, young age. <laughs> yeah, very young um, age. So what are you doing now at Impact? So right now, I lead the technology and strategy team. Um, what we are focusing on really is providing agnostic consulting or advisory to organizations trying to resolve their business needs or requirements through technology, right? As, as I mentioned, you know, back in my youth is all about Archibus, but right now I'm focusing on what are the different types of technology that are out there today? Because from what I'm sure a lot of us here on the line have experienced is that we are sold a certain amount 
of technology. We're told, okay, it's Arca bus, it's uh, Trirega, it's Manhattan, Centerstone, and probably a good handful of five. And not too many people know that there's more than 200 plus solutions in the marketplace today. And that's where I'm really honing and concentrating on saying, hey, let's educate the marketplace on truly what technologies do exist today and align the technology with their requirements, not, hey, let's go find a piece of technology that we're invested in and try to mold it into organizations' needs. So we've created something called the tech ecosystem uh, about a good year, year and a half ago for that sole purpose. It's like, let's, let's pull back the curtains. Let's educate. Here's all the different products that are out there. We work with vendors closely now to understand what their value add is uh, and how they position themselves in the market. And then with this type of data, we work with our clients to say, all right, these are the value props of this particular solution. Let's understand what your business requirements are, where you're trying to go, what your scaling plans are, and then let's fit you in that, in that correct solution, if you will. So that's one facet of what it is that we're doing. We also work with just Cat and Kaplan, right? A lot of organizations have a big need on just saying, hey, I need to understand from a floor plan perspective, what does my inventory look like? Let's clean all, all the floor plans. That's typically the foundation of a lot of these workplace technology tools. And then, of course, we also slap on uh, best business practice in, in your workplace organization. So we try to look at and say, assess what, where are you going now? What is your existing business process, if you will? And then how are you trying to put that into technology? Because in a lot of cases, it's the 80-20 rule. A lot of people think that technology is going to resolve their issues, when in reality, it's the data that you're putting inside the technology that ha- comes first, right? So we try to work with organizations and say, okay, let's let's understand your data, let's understand your process. Maybe we're going to tweak it a little bit here and there to really align with the technology that you have to get the output that you're looking for. Very, very true. The the data certainly is the driver there because I've I've been in organizations that have implemented technology thinking exactly that, that this technology was going to fix the problem and realize very quickly that it's not the technology. You have to fix the data that's going to go into the technology to fix the problem first. Right. Um, an interesting um, thought that I had while you were speaking was when you're talking about the ecosystem, do you foresee, or just from the experience exposure that you have, do you see companies looking to, consolidate their technology stack, like basically go to one service provider that does it all? Or are you still seeing sort of that distributed model where you go for best in class? I think I'm seeing both. So I right now, just to, to take it one step back, I think in pandemic world, a lot of people were trying to slap a solution on to fix the immediate issue. That's the band-aid concept, right? And I think a lot of organizations are now starting to realize, oh, my Lord, I bought anywhere between 30 to 60 different solutions. And I never thought about, do these solutions even talk to each other? There's so much redundancy in terms of technology and data that now organizations are like, oh, I need to, to go back to pre-pandemic status and figure out how am I going to find solutions that actually talk to each other? That's That's the biggest thing that I'm hearing right now is no one knows what data to look at. What is the master data? And, and so they're, again, trying to figure out how do I, again, resync my data to, to be able to rely on that. So that is one thing. So, so is that to say that IWMS is, is the answer for all of this? Not necessarily. However, there is large value in IWMS solutions uh, minus the price tag behind it. 
but it depends on who you are as an organization. What is it that you're trying to resolve? Where are you going? How are you scaling uh, as an organization? And of course, naturally, with these types of uh, understandings, then that's when a company like us would say, okay, you know, this an idea makes, makes more sense for you. However, if you are not scaling, if you are really just focusing perhaps on, let's say, just booking a space, for example, you don't, you don't need anything to do with space allocations, then a space management tool might not be for you. So a simple room desk booking tool might be the answer for you. So I don't think there's one answer fits all for you, Sandra, but um, again, it comes down to who are you as an organization, where are you going, what is your strategy, and you know, what's that you're looking to do now and in the long term. Yeah, I've often thought about this from the perspective of what's happening right now in the market. And as you said, you know, the IWMS solutions have quite the price tag. Uh, I know prior to the pandemic, a lot of companies who explored IWMS solutions were always, always tried away from it specifically because of the price tag and either went for a less expensive option that maybe didn't have all the functionality, all the bells and whistles, or they use the good old Excel spreadsheets to manage their space, right? But as I think about what's happening right now with just the uncertainty, you know, that we all are closely watching around what is going to happen, are people going to go back to the office, you know, are companies going to continue to invest or look to investing in technology when you're starting to see a decline in the number of people that are going to the office space, and does that require a different type of technology stack because the needs are no longer about space planning, kind of that type of stuff, which is more of the traditional way of thinking about space. Now it's more leaning towards potentially the experience and kind of just understanding supply and demand and how much that changes potentially from day to day, week to week, you know, month to month so that you can get ahead of it. Like one of the things that I've always struggled with both working in corporate real estate and then also working with companies that that um, or with corporate real estate teams is how reactive corporate real estate typically has been. And the date of the technology that has existed prior to this whole pandemic experience is always looking back. It's always, you know, looking at data and then how do we improve it? But it's based on looking backwards. What's changed right now is all the stuff from the past really has very little uh, significance in planning for the future because the behavior is completely out of whack. Like there's no consistency in pattern. There's no consistency in behavior. It hasn't normalized quite yet. We don't know when that's going to happen. It, you know, it could be in a couple of months. It could be next year. It could be in a, in a couple of years. And so when you think about it from the standpoint of companies trying to figure out, okay, I need some kind of technology but I don't even know what kind of technology I need because there's all these moving parts to what's happening. Are you finding that most companies are just waiting still? They are waiting. However, the forward thinkers are not waiting. They're starting to think about what technology they need. They're having conversations with people like us to really map these things out. And again, it's all coming down to as well as strategy, right? Is who are you? Who are you then? Who are you now? Where are you going? And how do we get there? What data do we need to get there? So, yes, a lot of companies are starting to reassess their technology. Can I say that they're just scrapping it all and starting over? Not necessarily. They are actually just looking back at 
their data sets and saying, okay, how do I make a story out of the data sets that I have? So we, we can't say that, you know, all historical data is meaningless because I think it helps us paint a picture of, of then and now. Yes, it is important to still have a space management tool. Uh, yeah, it depends on what it is that you're doing. Sure, are you reducing half of your portfolio? Okay, that might mean that you don't need such an expensive space management solution, but you still need a space management solution in order to understand what is happening today, right? You need your quantitative data still. People are still using space. Sure, it might not be a one-to-one assignment. However, people are still coming in whatever percentage that is, right, 20%, 30% now. But we still need to understand what is our current space inventory? How are things laid out? What is the distribution of, you know, my collaborative spaces versus my huddle spaces versus my conference meeting, et cetera, et cetera. And without these technologies to give us the data and to, to, to give us the trend, then we really don't understand what is happening today. So you can't say, yes, let's just eliminate space management because that's you can't do that. You need a baseline, at least to understand, or a tool to be able to capture that type of data. So I guess this is where the argument really comes in to say, you know, does utilization have a higher importance than space management tools? Probably. Absolutely. Like I think IoT is coming in, a lot of sensor companies are coming in, and that's the big emphasis. It's like, how is space being used today? You know, but on top of that, we also need to be gathering the qualitative data, right? It's not like, is, is Henry sitting in the space? Okay, well... How long was Henry there? But at the same time, like, was I getting what I needed? Or am I getting what I came to work the office for? Nice. Did I, was I productive or was I just sitting in a chair from eight to five and I was just on Amazon buying yeah. things all day? Like, yeah. <clears throat> you know, that, that's where the qualitative data comes into play. So there's a lot of things that need to take place right now. Number one. Let's get all your portfolio information into a system. I'm not going to call it IWS. I'm not going to say point solution. It's get into a system. Understand your baseline space inventory. Number two, understand what is the utilization of people coming in so you understand what are the trends that are going on. And then thirdly, get the qualitative data. Why are people coming in? Are they finding it useful? You know, what's going to enhance their experience? And once you have that type of information, then that's when you can start mapping out, okay, you know, this is how space is being used. This is why people are coming in. This is this is their satisfaction rate. And how do we mold or, or create this experience to to grow and scale? If that is your plan. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. I think the the layering of the data, the technology is key in terms of, like you said, is that you've planned your space a specific way, you've designed it specifically with an activity in mind. The behavior is the layer that basically validates are people using the space the way you intended it to be used. Uh, and then once you understand that, as well as what's changed from the employee's perspective, you bring all three of those points together to then think about, okay, how do we need to think about space going forward? So completely agree with that. Um, so I think this is a great um, segue sort of into the next part of our conversation. Um, you and I have talked in the past a little bit about the metaverse. I know that the last time we talked, you were exploring the metaverse, and I've been very excited about talking to you about this because I know how passionate you are about it and just how much work has gone into sort of exploring what that is all about. So why don't we start the conversation with you just explaining to our audience, what is the metaverse? <laughs> Ooh, big one. Yeah. So 
we should probably take an opportunity and, and have everyone in their own minds think about, you know, what is that? What is it that they've learned? How they've been educated? What have they heard in the headlines? What the metaverse is? And so I want people, while you're thinking about this, think about that for a second, because the definition that I might provide is going to be way different from what we've heard. And, and better yet, I think this definition is going to help just really refocus, you know, what the metaverse is and what it's not. And, and the idea of the fact that the metaverse isn't quite here yet. And I know that concept is going to be a little mind blowing to some of like, What do you mean the metaverse isn't here yet? A lot of organizations have really slapped that term on top of everything. And now everything's the metaverse. And for me, in my journey, that was very confusing. So um, I think hopefully this is enlightening to folks when I provide the definition, which is this. A massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds that can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of users with an individual sense of presence and with continuity of data such as identity, history, entitlements, objects, communications, and payments. That is the definition of the metaverse. But so I, I think one thing, too, to, just to help break that down, because there's a lot of words in there that if you were like, okay, like like 3D, all right, scale, virtual worlds, persistence, right? I think it's important to, to break that down in the definition. And when I do that, um, hopefully it'll make more sense when I reread the definition. Like, okay, so this is what this truly means. So number one is I talked about 3D, right? Virtual worlds come in many dimensions. 3D is a critical specification for the metaverse. Without 3D, we're technically talking about Web 2. But a pause there. I mentioned Web 2. I know a lot of people are saying, or they've heard Web 3, Web 2, Web 1. What What is that? Right. So before I, I drill down more into metaverse, we'll talk about the evolution of Web Internet. So Web 1, that is when Internet was first created in 1991. Actually, the federal government and a couple of universities were talking to each other, collaborating, sharing information back and forth. One day, uh, they probably woke up from a dream and said, you know, we should probably open this up to the world, right? This soon just be us. Uh, they made a tweak in, in some code in the back end, said, all right, let's, let's open this up to the masses. In 1991, that's, that was the infancy of, of the Internet. People were able to go in. They were able to read, consume. That's it, right? They weren't able to edit, do anything with the data. Just, just read it. Now, that's Web 1. Several decades forward, that's now Web 2. We are able as users, readers, consumers to read, write, edit, consume. So if you think about what we're doing now is we as users have the ability to collaborate with other users and expand on our definition in Wikipedia, for example, right? We, we have editing rights. We have the ability to post pictures, our sentiment. We can buy things. That's all web too. That's, that's our interaction now with the web. However, the data that we put into these platforms or not owned by us, right? Like if I post a picture in Facebook, they own it. They own the rights to it, my entire story, my sentiment. I don't own any of that. That's where Web3 comes into play, which is the evolution of where we're going in now. I can read, write, edit, consume, own. That's the missing part. Web3 is about owning your um, whatever it is that you're contributing into this. So when I post a picture, I own that picture. Those are my rights. When I have my identity posted on the Internet, I own my identity versus my identity being owned by massive 
advertising companies who sell my information. Now I have the right to sell my information if I want to and monetize on that. So that's huge. So hopefully I didn't get off way too much in tangent, but like that's the evolution of the web. So when you hear Web3, the metaverse is a layer within side of Web3. So Web3 is like the umbrella. Metaverse is within that umbrella. Web3 is uh, an element inside of the metaverse, meaning I can buy things in the metaverse and it's mine, right? My identity is mine inside the metaverse. That's, those are just components. So I don't want people to think metaverse is Web3. It's just a, com- it's a component within inside of Web3. All right, getting back into the definition. The next concept, right, is, is virtual worlds. And this is kind of the, the idea of saying, I'm going to list a couple names, right? These are virtual worlds, like the Centerland, Roblox, uh, Sandbox, All Space VR. People throw on the word metaverse on top of all these virtual worlds, which is not necessarily correct. These are just virtual worlds, right? And they don't speak to each other. They're not interoperable, which is a, the next word I'm going to talk about in a short in a second. If, 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 you know, the metaverse can't be the metaverse unless there's interoperable uh, interoperable connections. I need to be able to go back and forth. So when again, I want people to really think about this one and say, okay, when you hear all these different names, to really focus on these aren't metaverses, they're just virtual worlds. They, they are standalone products that are almost kind of like, um, you know, created by a, one specific organization, group of people. They don't connect, they don't talk to each other yet. And when they do, that's when the metaverse will be here. So that's something to really focus on. Next is real-time rendered. So when I say te- real-time rendering, uh, that's the process of generating 2D or 3D objects or environment using a computer program. And, and to give it a perfect example of this, if you if you were to think about a Pixar movie, Monsters, for example, if I were to try to render that movie on my personal computer, it would take two years to render this particular movie, which is an insane amount of time. And really what rendering means is making something visible, right? Uh, you need a supercomputer in order to really reduce this time. This is what you know, large organizations like Disney use, massive supercomputers, to be able to render these type of movies quickly to make it available to us. Now, in order for a virtual world to be alive, real-time rendering is required, which means ideally 120 frames must be rendered per second, right? So we're not there yet in technology. And that's the goal is that we, we need to be there. We need to provide real-time rendering in order for that to, to manifest itself. Next word is interoperable network. I think I talked this a little bit about inside of the virtual worlds concept. And that refers to the ability for computer systems or software to exchange and make use of information sent from one another. So what this means, again, is, is we've got 160-plus virtual worlds right now. No one speaks to each other. If I create my identity, for example, in Decentraland, I create my avatar or even spatial, that particular avatar cannot, cannot enter other uh, virtual worlds with that same identity, that same appearance, so on and so forth. If I spend money in a particular virtual world for my clothing, for example, that doesn't carry on to other solutions, um, nor does your identity. You'd have to have multiple identities. So you need that interoperable network in order for the metaverse to exist. And that's why I'm saying, like, the metaverse isn't here yet. We don't know when it's going to be here, but mass adoption is expected within, you know, five to ten years or so. The next concept is massively scaled. So I mentioned in the definition, in order for the metaverse to be the metaverse, it needs to be massively scaled. As we know the Internet, there are an infinite amount of web pages, right? And it's constantly growing today. A, a new LLC is created, they create a website immediately. That's how they market themselves. That's how 
they're so-called alive. And what's being said is that for the metaverse to be the metaverse, an infinite amount of virtual worlds need to exist. And within five years, this is what I consider mind-blowing, in five years, every company is going to have a virtual world like they do a website. So instead of us going to a website to go find out, oh, who's Impact Group or who's Relogix, they're going to go into a virtual world and get to go experience this company in a different perspective. They get to walk into HQ, for example, and they get to be meeted and greeted by an individual. Right. They can kind of get a understanding. They can walk into a room like, oh, this is your mission statement. This is what you're about. This is your services, so on and so forth. I mean, me as a visual visual person, I would prefer to walk into a, a virtual HQ than going to a website. I think that would sit a lot better in my mind on, on what that is. Next one, persistence. I love persistence. This is, this is a very interesting one. So to give an example of persistence and what this means and why it's important, think about Super Mario Brothers. Right. You jump into a level and you have to go defeat turtles and these funky looking brown wolves and so on and so forth. You jump on the turtle, it falls in a hole, you continue journey. And then, uh, you know, it's dinner time and you have to turn off your, your, your console. Right. When you come back, you have to go defeat the same little things that you defeated before. So that, that's the concept of persistence is that in the metaverse, for the metaverse, we do the metaverse. If I jump on the turtle and the turtle goes away, that turtle is gone forever. And not just only for me, but for everyone who's experiencing the metaverse at that time. But maybe not just that time, but literally forever. Like I never have to go jump on that turtle ever again. Same concept like if I were to uh, cut a tree or throw a baseball through a window in the metaverse, the computational formulas that are, are, are showing the metaverse are thinking in the back end, wow, okay, so Henry just broke the window. Do we keep this, this change forever? And the answer is yeah, right? And that's a massive amount of energy that's needed uh, or just an understanding to sustain that change now forever and for everyone. So that's the, the idea of persistence is that my change that I did in the metaverse is a permanent change and it's supposed to be seen by everyone. Then synchronous, and I know I'm throwing a lot of, of words, and, and I'm, that's why I'm going to read the definition all over again at the very end to hopefully paint the, the picture and, and bring it to full loop. Synchronous, you know, when you're in a Zoom meeting on video, you think that you're speaking to the person live. Like right now, you and I think that we're speaking live. I put my hand up yeah. and you think I'm really <laughs> doing that right now, right? So is question are we in a synchronous connection right now? The answer is no, which is mind-blowing. So what's happening in technology is that, um, let's say in this case, meetings is, is or Zoom is recording my hand motions, my voice, and it's packaging it and sending you little snippets at a fast enough pace to where you think that this conversation is live. Something that I never even thought about until now is, is maybe you'll see that a speaker is all of a sudden talking really fast and then he slows down or she slows down and it comes back to normal. That's because someone at some point experienced a disconnection. You're offline and technology is still capturing a recording and sending it to the other person fast enough to hopefully it's catching them up to the conversation and psychologically making you think that there was never a disconnect there. That is mind-blowing to think about. So, again, for this, for the metaverse to be the metaverse, we need to have a synchronous connection. It needs to be truly live. It can't be these little snippets going back and forth. 
Next is uh, unlimited users and individual presence. So some of the most successful video games companies in history with the most powerful computers have a hard time sustaining 150 users in a shared simulation. That's 150 users, right? So if you put more than 150 users in a simulated game today, that means that, number one, you will either start to experience a let's say the quality of your experience will go down. So it won't be equal for everyone. Or there might just be a server crash, right? So the metaverse, for the metaverse, we need to be able to have an infinite amount of people, thousands of people who are able to, again, to go into any virtual world and cross that back and forth. And again, your experience needs to be exactly the same. Because if you don't have this, then people are not going to adopt the solution, right? Or the technology. My experience is, is, it's less than yours, then that's not a good way to, to build the future of the metaverse. So I, I provided a, a big definition of what the metaverse is, and I pinpointed on certain words to help hopefully highlight what the definition of the metaverse is. I'm going to reread the definition again to hopefully now that everyone has heard what I'm talking about with um, those specific words, it makes more sense. So I'm going to read it. A massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds that can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of users with an individual sense of presence and with continuity of data, such as identity, history, entitlements, objects, communications, and payments. So hopefully now that with the content within the definition, now reading, rereading the definition, it makes a little more sense. Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely adds um, clarity to kind of where the gaps are, especially when you talk about what we think is the metaverse versus what it actually is and realizing that there's still a lot that's forthcoming. It's not it's not quite there yet. Um, I wrote down a couple of notes just as you were talking um, initially the when you're talking about, you know, the ability to, um, you know, upload photos and, and that kind of, of thing. And as you were talking specifically about ownership, I know this is kind of the first thing that jumped into my mind, and I'm sure our listeners are probably thinking the same thing. How does copyright play into that? Because copyright, yeah, I mean, I know, like, you know, the probably the companies that we're both we're all thinking about in terms of you upload your photo and they own the rights to it. It's kind of like, well, if you're assigning copyright, it's one thing. But technically, when you post something on the Internet, depending where you post it, you do retain copyright so that doesn't necessarily go away are you saying that in the metaverse the copyright stays with you regardless until you decide whether you or not you want to assign that to someone else right that's the okay. beauty around blockchain technology and nfts and i'm going to talk a little more about nfts uh probably a little later mm-hmm. but I, I know a lot of people think about nfts as being like art right i'm like oh it's the the funky looking apes from the yacht club right <laughs> and even though that is a component of NFTs, and, and just for everyone, NFT is a non-fungible token. Now, the way that NFTs are, are really developed, they're supposed to be smart contracts, essentially is what they are, right? So they can be used as a, um, like a gym membership. They can be literally my, my, my Disney pass or any of that kind of stuff. They can even be for corporate real estate, like a lease. It's, it's just a smart contract. It says, okay, this is my lease. These are the dates. These are the terms, conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So to your point, copyright, like if I post a picture, I first have to convert that to a smart contract. It's, it's an NFT. I convert it to an NFT. It says, okay, this NFT was created by Henry Massey. Here's his, um, let's say, IP address, so on and so forth. Here's the details of this specific piece. 
And therefore, if I were to ever transfer it, or meaning sell my NFT, it, it shows the origination. This is where it came from, right? So the history of the transaction will always be there. That's, that's technically the, the copyright, if you will. Interesting. Okay. So the second part was when you were talking about um, persistence, when you noted, you know, if you were to break a window, right, and, and how that needs to be maintained in the metaverse. So does that mean that that gets maintained for you as part of your experience or is that for everyone? So I kind of look to Wikipedia, for example, if I go in and make an edit to Wikipedia, everybody can see it. It's not just when I log in, the version of Wikipedia that I see shows the changes that I've made. It's everybody can see my changes. Is that kind of the same, would, would be the same thing in the metaverse experience as well? Same exact concept, right? So let's say I'm in front of a building, I throw a baseball through a window. Not only will I hear the window crashing, you know, everyone else who's around me will also experience, so I get to see Henry throwing a ball through a window, window shatters, everyone gets to experience it at the same time. And it's good that that change will be there forever. Everyone, when they come back in the metaverse, they'll see that rough window that Henry, Henry did. Whatever wild reason. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, and then the third point is around uh, the, you know, synchronous working, asynchronous working or asynchronous experiences. As you were talking, I was thinking about, um, you know, the Sims second life. Again, just that thing of, you know, you're there, you're you're experiencing, I guess, you know, based on your definition, those worlds are more VR world than the metaverse, but very much along the lines of, you know, you build whatever it is that you want to build in Sims or in Second Life, and it's there. Like, you can go back. That's the persistence aspect, right, is, is that you you go back um, into it, you know, a day, a week, a month later, years later. I've gone back into Second Life recently, and, you know, my avatar is still there from the 90s and, like, just – so it's it's there, right? Yeah. But so it, again, is that different in terms of when you talk about like persistence and synchronization in the metaverse? Like, I guess that's it's kind of probably con- tied to the previous thing of you know thinking about when you're doing something like you were talking about the turtle in um what is it was it Super Mario that you're talking about Super or, Mario Brothers yeah yeah when you when you talk about that sort of experience that you know you don't have to go through the process again. So again, thinking about, okay, you build something in Sims or you build something in Second Life and it's there until you take it down. You don't have to go through that process again. It's kind of something that you build upon over time. Uh, and it's available to the people that are in that community for certain, not obviously available to people outside of that community, but within that space, everybody can see what you're doing. They can experience like, you know, going through your space and interacting with you and so how close is that to this concept of the metaverse or is that still still VR, technically speaking? So unfolding a couple of things that you're saying. So one is I heard a lot of persistence, right? If I'm building something, if I have something in this virtual world, is it being is it still there for not only for myself, but come back a decade later or, you know, is it still there for people? That's the whole concept of persistence, Correct. right? Persistence, I think, exists um, in a lot of virtual worlds, right? 
And and that I think that's the beauty right now is that a lot of these virtual worlds they're not on insane tech stacks right now. Like they they can bring in the experience that people are looking for, like persistence. They can bring in uh, synchronous connections because it's still small at the moment. But in order for the metaverse to be the metaverse, we need to enhance that type of technology tenfold because we need to keep that integrity of that experience, not only from in that virtual world, but across an infinite amount of virtual worlds that are going to be connected. So that's what I'm saying is like right now, if you're to try to do that, you're going to lose probably your persistence because there's some serious computational mathematics that are going on. They're solving problems and trying to answer questions with algorithms, all, all kinds of things. So, um, yeah, again, from a small scale, you can do that now. But, again, to, to, to scale it, that's not it's not here yet. Okay. Same thing with synchronous, right? Like, that, that is just the concept of, like, how do you make live conversations really live? Because if, if this, you and I are, which is weird to say that this isn't really live, you know, like, what is live look like? Well, I don't think from a from an eye to eye perspective, right? We, we we can't tell the difference from a, from a technology perspective. I'm sure it means the world. So um, I don't know. Technology is not quite there yet, but we will be. Yeah, very shortly. <laughs> Pretty confident that we will be too. Yeah. At the rate things are going. Okay, well, this has been really really interesting. So. What would you say is then the purpose of the metaverse? So now that we understand what the metaverse is, what would you say is the is the overarching purpose of the metaverse? Like, why have it? Well, I think that is a very loaded question. I think right now the use case can be everything and anything you want, right? But I think what's probably more important is to talk about the possibilities. You know, what is what is the metaverse allowing us to do? And then I think from there we can talk about even the use cases of it. But, you know, where are we? What are we doing? What are the possibilities? One, I think uh, digital identities using avatars is, is the biggest component right now. It's number one. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, why do I want to create a digital identity using an avatar? That's just that's funky to me. And it depends on the generation that you're talking to. Yeah. Boomer, baby boomers. You have Gen X's like. I prefer in real life. You know, hashtag IRL. But if you talk to a millennial, if you talk to a Gen Z, they're going to give you a completely different response. They're going to say, my digital identity is more important than my physical identity because I have spent countless hours developing, you know, forming my digital presence. Because if you think about it, like everything that they do is is all on a digital platform, social media, TikTok, Instagram, so on and so forth. So because they are the future, that that is going to be seamless for them. It's like they're like, yeah, I already have my digital identity. I have an avatar. This is how I identify myself. That's the beauty, though, around the metaverse is that it's allowing people to come into the metaverse and and create themselves however they please. Like if you want to go into the metaverse, you can be a complete different object. You can be a robot, a unicorn. You know, or it could be you, but you can come in and identify yourself however you please. That's the beauty around all of this. Another perfect example, too, is uh, I was talking to a Gen Z, 25 years old, and you know, I was asking the question, like, you know, what is it about digital assets and avatars and all that jazz that is so important to you guys? And he flipped the question. He says, OK, let's talk about physical mail and emails. 
which one would you eliminate today? I'm like, physical mail. He said, well, why? My my Gmail, for example, has decades of information. Like if, if someone would get rid of my Gmail account today, that would destroy my day. Right? I, I think I'd be mad about that for quite some time. There's a lot of information yeah. in there. Um, so he's like, exactly. Right? Like we spend a lot of time building our digital out, you know, our assets and we would prefer to trade in our physical assets for that. That to me was like, okay, I, I get it. That was a, a real tangible example. But with, with digital identities also brings no racism, no gender bias, no segregation. Right. It'll, it absolutely eliminates this concept, which is something we've been fighting for for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I think that alone is, is just a massive possibility that is coming in and people are saying, yeah, this is incredibly important. We need to pay attention to this. And then, um, of course, global citizenship, which is another important facet, is that there are no boundaries. There's no racial or like segregation in terms of like, where do you come from? What is your sex, gender, your identity, religion? None of that. It's just we're all part of this global virtual concept that doesn't have a boundary, which I think is, is beautiful. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is true digital ownership. What I was talking about like three is, is you owning a piece of the internet is, is massive. Like I was talking about owning your identity. I don't think enough of us have thought about that. I haven't. I'm just like, sure, I'll sign your terms and agreements and conditions, not thinking about like what that even means. What I'm saying, yep, click here. You've sold your soul to Facebook. They own you. Uh, yeah, true digital ownership is massive. I don't even know what I'm going to be able to do with that, right? Like to have that type of power back in my hands that um, opens up all kinds of different possibilities. And then three is the concept of time and space. I know this is another one people are like, okay, you know, we can fly, we can jump around, you know, I don't have any physical, you know, we eliminate all the physical laws or barriers of the real world. We were all born in Earth where we have gravity and like we've accepted those terms, right? It's like, I walk, I can't jump and I don't fly. But it was funny because someone asked me uh, in my leadership program at Cornet, they're like, Henry, what what would be your spirit animal? And I was like, an eagle. You know, I wish I could fly. That would be phenomenal. Like if I can go jump and hover over the clouds, go over the mountains and see the sunset, sunrise, get to locations faster, all while experiencing whatever I'm hovering over, like that would be incredible. And that's the whole concept of like eliminating or not eliminating time, but how do I uh, change the reality of time? Because I can't jump in an airplane all the time. I can't necessarily get in my car and just drive across the world. It's not possible. But if I can fly, I can most likely get to places a lot faster, right? And experience a lot more. Yeah. No accidents and all that good jazz. So um, those are the possibilities I I think that we're we're going to be looking at. And again, I, to answer your question very specifically, I don't think there's one specific use case, right? I think everyone who's coming into the metaverse has their own idea of why they want to bring in or, or jump into the metaverse. It's, it's, the metaverse is going to be used to augment your existing reality, not replace it, right? And the, the, the different ways that I could potentially use the metaverse are massive. For me, I'll talk about me specifically in this case, is that I work at home. I'm a remote employee 100% of the time. My 
connectivity with my employees, colleagues, friends, family is very limited, right? Um, so if I had the ability to capture all these individuals, bring them to the metaverse and, and have a little more in, I was going to say in real life experience, it's almost, to me, that'd be a little more real, right? Like instead of a conversation on Zoom or Teams, where it's just a 2D image, I can literally be with you somewhere experiencing something which will enhance my experience with you. Real life story here, and, and this is talking about more about experience, I think, is, uh, is part of a masterclass that I was in. And I, I think I talked about this a little bit on LinkedIn. There was uh, this class had around 100 people. And as the icebreaker, we jumped into a virtual world spatial um, to meet each other and to play a game of bingo. The concept was you had to run around, go talk to as many people as you can to learn about them and match their name to the bingo cards. And whoever got to meet as many people as they could won, right? They, they won a virtual world, for example. And I thought, okay, that's fascinating. That's interesting being the type of individual that I am. But I jumped in and I found myself doing quite the opposite. I was actually like, intimidated. I was vulnerable because I felt like literally I was in a room with 50 different people. which like, whoa, sensory overload, right? Like me as an individual, I wanted to like stray away from the people and go get familiar with my surrounding first before I even interacted with anyone. But we had 15 minutes right, to, to do the game. I'm like, ah, I'm going to spend like 10 minutes walking around this place and trying to figure out my controls nonetheless. Know what can I can I gotta do, and then maybe I'll spend five minutes at the very end, you know, talking to people, right? So, yeah, that was my experience, my first time experience, like literally jumping in, thinking that you know, cool, I get to hide behind an avatar, therefore, you know, my shyness or my whatever isn't going to be manifested. Quite the contrary, you know. So I think when when people do start thinking about jumping in, like they need to think about these certain things, right? Like if companies actually start strategically thinking about building the metaverse and bringing them to their company and then just throw everyone in, I think there needs to be kind of like an onboarding phase in, into the metaverse. Like, okay, just get, get familiar with the surroundings, and when you're ready to interact with people, great. You know, do it, do it at your own pace. So that's definitely a lesson learned that I experienced. But, yeah, hopefully that answers your questions on, you know, what are the possibilities? Where, where are we going? Why are people using it, experiencing it, so on and so forth? Yeah, no, I mean, they're all, they're all um, good points, good takeaways. I think the key, I mean, it's exciting to think about the possibilities of, you know, what are the potential use cases and all the cool things that you could do and how just our experiences as people on earth could be enhanced just because it creates opportunities for you to do things that you weren't able, you're not able to do in the real world. I mean, yeah, the, the opportunity for sort of more of a generic term is there in the sense that you need to get on a plane or you need to get in a car or you need to go somewhere to interact with people whereas it's there at your fingertips whenever you choose to participate in this world that you know can have just as much of an impact or significance as if you were doing it in real life where you're face to face with someone which I think is really cool I think the the flip side of that is, you know, as with everything, especially as it relates to technology, although it's probably true of humanity in general as well, there's the dark side, right? Is, is that you're in this world that has no rules because really 
there there really wouldn't be any rules. Uh, and so there's a there's a level of vulnerability from that perspective as well, because you're going in on good faith that, you know, the people that are there are there for the right reasons. But as I said, there's other things that we probably will have to experience before we come out on the other side of this being sort of a cool factor where all those hiccups have been have been worked out. Right. You bring up a great point, and that is is your security, right? There's a lot of, I think, uh, people really questioning, you know, what is the security that I'm going to have inside of the metaverse? And you have a lot of creators that are starting to finally think about that. Because, you know, right, people are just like, I have this awesome idea. They just throw it in there, but they don't take into consideration your mental well-being, your your physical whatever it is, your, your, the respect that people are putting on you in that particular space. And they're starting to implement that heavily now. There are solutions that are like they're creating invisible rings around you, for example. It says you're not allowed within my space unless I let you in, within my space as a default, which is really cool because I'm sure you've seen um, the news article, I think, a, a couple months ago about yes. an individual who felt harassed. Yeah. And because of that, you're like, ah, ha, we got to implement these types of things inside of our virtual world, right? Um, but we're going to see a lot of that, I think, come up still because we haven't necessarily peeled back the onion far enough to be able to just really think about all these different concepts. Mm-hmm. So so what are some of the use cases that you, you think would be applicable? Yes, yeah, so we're seeing eight that have popped up right now. We've done some studies, polls, uh, question surveys, all kinds of, of questions to the audience as well uh, to figure out what are people what are people even thinking about and how would people like to see uh, metaverse being implemented. And we've implemented our own thoughts in this as well. But uh, to talk about those eight really quickly, one is virtual onboarding. We have seen, I think, three large organizations do this internally, right? Uh, they've, they've expressed that it's created fantastic user experience Everyone from around the world can meet and greet to where they would be able to do that really in real life. And they all get the a baseline experience, which is massive. Mm-hmm. Two would be learning and training center that I think that is starting to take over, uh, becoming the most number one, most critical concept even out there is talking about baselining, right? How do I baseline my training that I'm providing to my employees, teams that are out there? Uh, that is helping eliminate uh, language barriers, uh, eliminating technology issues, stuff of that nature, right? I, I can give the same information to anyone around the world and everyone's getting the same exact experience. Number three would be company library. People are like, what, 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 what's there? You know, think about all the different areas that your company documentation stored in. You're like, where's your HR handbook? Like your employee handbook? Where's like the benefits? Where do I go to find all these things? In a metaverse, a virtual world, I can literally walk into a room and I can see that all of that kind of in a room that creates an amazing experience. Like, oh, okay, I can quickly find my HR guy here. I can quickly view the mission statement of the organization there. I learn, yeah, and I say, okay, yeah, you know, you re-engage with the company that way, mm-hmm. I think. Then number four, you have company help desk, HRIT. I know my experience uh, in my career spend times has been kind of interesting with HR or IT. Like, I have to go... I'm going to campus, hike four buildings down to go find the IT group, and then I wait in line and do that thing. In the virtual world, you can essentially just pop in, go to a kiosk, for example, and you might have a little more resources to help you in that arena. I don't have to go anywhere. It's a little more seamless. Five, virtual work. 
Um, people are like, oh, what's the value of virtual work? Like, well, I can just go in real life. But, like, I use myself as an example. I am in Tucson, Arizona. You know, I don't have an HQ around me. Um, so I would love to pop into a HQ quarters on, in the metaverse because you can't see behind me, but I literally sit in a white room with no, no, it's not, it's not cute, right? <laughs> I get bored of my space and I'd love to sit, you know, maybe with you and collaborate somewhere, you know, that'd be awesome. So, uh, people are finding value in that. Just pop in, pop out whenever you want to. And then six, creating engagements. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, I want to be able to just interact with people in a different way, in a different experience, whether it's a yoga class, a wellness class, uh, an event, concert, whatever that may be. I want to just, again, engage with people. And that's what uh, a big use case that people are looking for. So how do I engage with people in a different, in different uh, environments, if I will? Seven, functional venues. People are looking at or we're trying to find virtual worlds that are providing something for me, an infrastructure that exists a conference room, a building, an event location, whatever it may be, so that I don't have to just go in and maybe buy a land and create something. I can go find something that fits my needs and uh, and use that for my, my, my necessities, if you will. And then eight is digital twins. I think this is uh, this can kind of go into multiple different directions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it can go into BIM. It can go into, you know, literally mapping out your existing building and, and data and all like a jazz, but we're not going to go there. Digital twins, keep it simple is duplicating your reality. My reality is what it is that I have around me. What if I wanted to experience this reality in a digital fashion? I can. You know, I can jump around. I can go fly over Tucson if I want to, right, where I can't do that in real life. Um, same thing with HQ. People are, are creating digital twins of their buildings that people can pop in, have that experience because they're concentrating on, on experience, culture, and so on and so forth. They want to duplicate that experience. So, so those are eight different use cases totally dynamic. These aren't static by any way, shape, or form, and it will continue to grow, but these are the big eight that we're seeing so far as, as being the primary use cases. Do you foresee a change coming? Like, these use cases seem all very relevant. They're all more informational gathering, just kind of providing that avenue for people to come together or to go and learn about something. Do you see that potentially changing in the future? Is it going to move to something else? Shaking my crystal ball, totally. You know, I, I definitely can't say like what the change is going to be, but as everything in technology, there's always change. There are things that we cannot even envision right now, right? That are are, are going to manifest itself as opportunities. I think in the future, for sure. So, um, if we think about now, like what we talked about from the business side of things. Uh, is there anyone currently that you can think of that's leading the charge, like with respect to certain genres or just even organizations that are that are leading the charge in the metaverse space? Talking about like creators who are actually creating virtual yeah. worlds. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely a few. And thinking about those, of course, you have. I'll give you some mainstream ones, and then I'll, maybe I'll give you a couple ones that aren't so mainstream but are, are starting to make a name for themselves, if you will. So, of course, you have, like, Decentraland, Roblox, Sandbox, um, Alt-VR space, right? Those are, like, the main names that you're going to hear. Now, a lot of these are decentralized-type platforms that are really, again, just they're open worlds. They are open to everyone and anyone. 
being from a child to, you know, a senior individual who can come in and explore the space. When it comes to the genre, these are things that I think that everyone needs to kind of think about and step back. Like if you are thinking about getting into the space, what is the use case for these specific lands? Decentraland, I'm sure everyone's heard a lot of headline news. It's like, oh, Snoop Dogg's in Decentraland, Nike's in Decentraland. But again, it fits their strategy as an organization. Does that fit your strategy? Is that the type of user experience that you want? Are you allowing the world to come into your organization? Yay or nay? So these, these are things to think about from a strategy perspective. But okay, so anyways, regardless, so, so you have a couple of names like that. Um, in terms of like the corporate world, for example, that, cause we're concentrating on like, okay, cool. Like I want to be able to see or be in a virtual world that provides me, uh, meeting rooms to do, you know, to learn, to, to meet with internal and external colleagues, uh, 3D showrooms, so on and so forth. We have like XR space is a pretty cool virtual world that is, um, fully enabled to provide those things. They provide like, wellness activities, events, brand experiences, so on and so forth. Alt space in VR, which is what uh, Accenture is using for their onboarding tool. That's where you can create your own uh, digital avatar. Still a little cartoony, however, it looks a little more like you than some of what the other products look like. So again, that one focuses on virtual meetings, conferences, and events, uh, mixed reality for for brands and businesses. Then you have uh, another one called Verbella, which for corporate real estate also offers virtual workspaces to bring people together and uh, learn, meet, train, interact from anywhere. These are all not decentralized or decentralized platforms, meaning a corporation is creating this virtual world and you're paying probably a subscription fee to access this type of environment. Now, if I'm gonna peel that back, there is another option called Cornerstone they're created by Zone. They were a decentralized platform. And the beauty around this particular uh, virtual world is, is hyper-realistic. So if you want to have that real-life mature type experience, maybe it's where like people of our generation, uh, Gen X, baby boomers, the, the older, I think this is something that a lot of folks will be able to um, assimilate more with. Because when you go into this land, you're like, wow, the grass looks really real. The trees look real, swaying with the current conditions of what it is that, that's like, forget what city they're mapping the weather to, but it mimics it. Um, and what's awesome about a place like this virtual world is they actually vet you before you even can enter in, meaning like, I want to buy land in this area. They will vet you and say, okay, who are you? Are you a speculator? What is your deal? Are you a creator? Or are you just coming in to buy land, let it sit for five years, and then make a profit for it at some point? And they're looking for creators, creators only. If you're going to come in, you have to present your plan to them, and they want you to actually build on your land. And not only for you, but how is it going to benefit the community, which is is phenomenal. Like, you actually have a virtual world who's thinking about, okay, if we're, if we're creating a virtual world, it's not just for money, but it's like, how are we building a community inside this virtual world to where they all kind of work with each other in some interesting fashion and help monetize together? 
or not, right? Like that. I mean, there's a use case that um, I was in the Discord the other day, and someone bought land so that they can create a cemetery. That's so they can have like their family plots there. People can come in and mourn or whatever, come visit their family in a virtual world. I had never thought about that use case, but people were finding value in that. Or on the contrary, you know, you can build your corporate building that is just a masterpiece and you can bring in people as virtual uh, guests and you can have events. You can have conference events. You can bring your team, things of that nature. So, um, yeah, there are, there are definitely solutions that offer different types of experiences. Going from your Lego feel to your hyper-realistic, <laughs> it depends on your use case and what it is that you're trying to do. But there's fascinating uh, virtual worlds that are, are popping up right now. This very much reminds me of Second Life because my experience with Second Life was just that. Like, I mean, you could actually work in Second Life and make Linden dollars, which actually you could convert into real dollars, which I remember when I learned that concept that I was like, what? It doesn't yeah. make any sense. But people were actually doing that and, and still continue to do that. Um, but, yeah, like I remember HP had a, an auditorium on Second Life um, menu. No, was it? Uh, one of the recruiting companies, uh, forget the name of the company now, but they had also sort of you go in and, you know, there was like a bank of computers. So if you were looking for a job, it was almost like you were in their office interacting with this recruitment company. Uh, and then they would have their their meetings, like, you know, if you were depending on if it was public facing or private, that you could actually be in the auditorium in the audience to listen in on kind of like a virtual webinar, if you will, but done in the virtual world. This is going back to like the late 90s, maybe early mm-hmm. 2000s when I first saw that. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like from a business perspective, it was mostly like the social stuff. People were there to have fun and just kind of. But that same concept of creating these worlds where you walk into the doors and you don't really know what you're going to experience until you're there. And so when you're talking about like, uh, you know, decentralized land and kind of, you know, some of these companies that are in those locations and how maybe it's a similar thing that you walk into, you know, the Nike space or you walk into the Lego space. It's all in the same community, but the experience that you're going to have might be different. And I can kind of see now how the connection to the other virtual worlds really would play on what that experience might be like. So the cartoony sort of look and feel, which maybe might be better suited to Lego versus more of a real sort of experience, you know, if you were to walk into the Nike space, for example, or, you know, something that kind of appeals more to the senses, if you will, based on that experience that you're going to have. So I think that that's, that's all, that's all really cool. It, it feels like it's light years away because it just feels like, you know, how in that world would you ever bring all of that together? But I think that's the key is, is that if you have communities of people working together for the greater good, for this concept of bringing it all together so that that experience is is not exclusive to one group, but really for the enjoyment of all. I think that that could be extremely, uh, extremely beneficial. So uh, having said all that, so let's, again, bring it back to basically companies and organizations. Do you think companies should be thinking about their place in the metaverse today and why or why not? I mean, I think I know where this is going to go, but I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts. I think first and foremost, it's going to depend on who you are, what your strategy is. Now, if you're Nike, if you're a retail company, does it make sense? 100%, right? Because you're trying to 
get your brand out there to where it might not be accessible to everyone in the world today, right? Now, to step back, I think at the same time, there's there are multiple facets of this to where you ask, what should companies be thinking about? What should they be educating on? I don't think the answer is like, oh, I, I need to jump in the metaverse. I think right now what people need to be doing is understanding what the metaverse is. What is Web3? How, if at all, am I going to implement this concept in my organization? Let's think from, from a financial perspective. Yeah. Corporate real estate, I was talking to someone so saying, you know, we're using Web3 to uh, eliminate the middle people who are controlling all of our leases, we're throwing it into the blockchain, putting all of that into smart contracts, and that's what we use. Um, I was just reading an article this morning about how a lot of organizations are trying to figure out how to get into Web3 because the whole com- component of this is they're eliminating the middleman. Like, imagine how much money you can save if you do that, because now companies own their information rather than hiring uh, the middle middle companies to be managing all this stuff for them. So that's one component. The metaverse as a whole, that, that's another one. It's who are you trying to reach out to? What is your purpose to be in the metaverse? I think these are all questions that you need to answer first. Are you trying to create a brand for yourself? Are you trying to create awareness about your existence? Or are you trying to attract you know, HR people are finding incredible value in the metaverse. Say, hey, let's pop up our HQ in the metaverse. I have access to a lot of people worldwide. You know, they can come into our office and I can, they can learn about us. I can learn about them. I can hire people, talent right off the bat. So for HR, this just makes sense. You know, um, there was a law firm that actually just popped up in Decentraland. And their, their component or concept was, we just want global outreach. You know, people can literally just walk in and say, hey, I would like a consultation on XYZ issues, you know, and that's how they initiate discussions. People today, like, you'd have to go find them on the Internet. You'd have to go, it would be a reference, right? Like, versus if someone who's just walking down the street sees this law firm, like, oh, interesting, you know? So... I think step one, again, is organizations need to understand the technology, go get educated, and then go figure out next, how do I fit in the model, if, if at all you want to, right? And that's what Impact is also honing in on in terms of services. We're helping organizations kind of go through that process and say, okay, let's help you, number one, understand all the different solutions that are out there. That's step one. Just very much like what we do with the tech ecosystem, right? I'm, I'm not sure if everyone here has seen that. But we were the first one who created a tech ecosystem, mapping out 200 plus different solutions and where they kind of sit in the spectrum of tech. We did the same thing with, with the metaverse, saying, okay, let's find all the different solutions that are out there, platforms, VR, or uh, virtual worlds, and go map out what genre are you in? Where are you in your, in your cycle? Are you active or are you still in dev? What products are you working on? Uh, what genre are you in? And then what are your use cases? What are you providing? So that so when companies come to us like Henry, who are the key players? Like you asked me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that I listed are just the ones that are are, are making movement inside the the corporate world, uh, corporate real estate world. But there are hundreds more that we didn't even talk about. Um, and again, we help organizations really define, help them define what their requirements are, and hopefully provide them with a list of different virtual worlds that are out there and how they can potentially fit 
in their their model, if you will. This is a, a topic that's new. There's as you continue to talk, just more ideas pop into your head about, you know, different things, especially when you're talking about like the middleman and the whole concept around ownership of data, which I think is the upside of all of this. Like really, you know, over the last maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years, like we've just seen this explosion of data on the market. There's data everywhere. Not very many people know, you know, what's out there, how is it being used, Who's own, who owns the data, like the example that you gave that, you know, you're, virtually everything you do is online these days and there's always that, you know, click here, you know, to agree and nobody reads it, you just scroll to the bottom and you're like, oh, yeah, I agree, whatever, yeah. right? But you don't know what you're, you're technically signing away until there's an issue. Um, so I think from that perspective, you know, for certain, there's, you know, again, major advantages. I think the part that I can't help but think about is how this is going to change just the the fundamental concept of business, right? When you when you said, you know, it's it eliminates the middleman because people can do things themselves because you have access, you have the ability to do things yourself and have ownership of it. I mean, just imagine the impact to the business world as a result. And so as I think about regardless of the strat like your strategy. I mean, there's a strategy to a point, but it's more of the, you know, sort of the pros and cons of being part of something or choosing not to be part of something. And I think just like everything else, at some point, it's almost like you're not going to have a choice because you're going to be missing out on what's happening in this world that you might not be part of because maybe you didn't see the value, the value in it. Right. Um, but, yeah, as I said, it's 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 extremely um fascinating topic for discussion and the company that I was referring to before about um, Second Life, the recruitment company was Manpower. I know they mm-hmm. have like videos on uh, on YouTube that show like kind of what their environment looked like back then. But so final question, what are the three um, most important elements for the future of the metaverse? Fascinating question. I think the first one will be interconnected. You know, I should be able to go to the Maldives to just experience the beach. I should be able to go to New York to catch a show or even to Amsterdam to enjoy a festival uh, all in the same day, right? To experience all this. And the only way that I can do that is a interconnected network. So that, that takes number one. Number two would be decentralized, right? All This allows users to experience the metaverse from a place of more safety, greater privacy, and less manipulation. And to wrap it up, which is the, the most important um, component of the metaverse is Inclusive and diversity, right? For the first time in human history, diversity and equality becomes a reality. You know, the metaverse is eliminating this inequality by creating opportunities for everyone. And a perfect example of this, which is, uh, absolutely love this one, is a student from India, a lawyer from the U.S., and a farm worker from Europe can all find a place of equality and inclusivity in the metaverse. So that one concept right there alone is makes the entire metaverse uh, worth it in my perspective. And that is supposed to be the future of where we're going with the metaverse. I'm sure there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I just wanted to say uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It's funny how an hour has gone by so quickly, um, but uh, again, thank you very much for your time uh, and for sharing all this great and new information with our audience. I uh, look forward to learning more and 
If you want to connect with uh, Henry, please do so on uh, LinkedIn. I will also be adding a couple of links to some of the sites that we've mentioned in this podcast on our site at relogics.com. All right, Henry. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Sandra. Bye. Bye. Bye.